the good feels um, feels so good when you, you know, navigate to a point that you want because it's often the hard part to get there. And I think that's true of life. You know, some if everything came sort of was perfect all the time and super easy, then you might not enjoy those highs as much. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a young, thriving entrepreneur who has disrupted the legal landscape of Australia, is scaling at a rapid rate, and knows the importance of his team having the energy to perform. This adventurous Canberra lawyer founded the Proximity Legal Practice in 2011 with James Dunn, following a successful career at law firms Phillips Fox and DLA Piper. Proximity is an award-winning law firm with a difference, providing legal, procurement and commercial and governance and assurance solutions through innovative advisory practices. He has a bachelor degree in computer engineering and law from the University of Canberra, as well as a graduate diploma legal practice from the Australian National University. In his spare time, he is director of Early Bird Events, supports Men's Link, loves being in the outdoors, and recently competed in the Adventure Racing World Championships held in Reunion Island in Madagascar. Community is a huge part of his life and has been a great role model for his team in supporting and getting involved in the Proximity Canberra Triathlon Festival, which is the most accessible triathlon for the corporate, government and Canberra community. We're looking forward to going on one big adventure as we welcome you to our very special guest, Sean King. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. It's uh, probably the best intro I've ever had. So. <laughs> Would you <laughs> like to leave it at that? Then? Yeah, that's right. We can we'll, stop now. We'll move on. <laughs> well, it, it, it's amazing. You know, that introduction just tells us a little bit about yourself. Um, but I guess I'd like to j just jump in and get you to tell us a little bit about your background growing up in Victoria and sort of how that led to where you are now. Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up, my father was in the military, so I spent a chunk of time in Victoria. We got to live in all sorts of places around Australia. Um, and that was, that was great, actually. We lived in lots of rural places, in a city, and got to see you know, lots, of the, lots of the country growing up. Um, and um, you know, it was a, meant that you sort of saw lots of different environments, went to you know, many different schools, and, um, but I had a fairly traditional upbringing, I guess, um, you know, like a lot of Australians in a sort of very privileged country, and, um, but a, yeah, quite a traditional upbringing. Um, got to spend lots of sort of time out farming, but then you know, sporting-wise, um, you know, playing tennis and Aussie rules football, and uh, yeah, from a fairly traditional upbringing. A lot of the leaders that we speak to, like Kate Palmer um, from the Sports Commission or now Sport Australia, um, and some of those people talk about their upbringing through community sport and learning from their parents and the community sporting organisations about how they want to sort of continue forward. Would be fair, fair to say that's what you learned from? Yeah, that's yeah. right. I don't think you can take a lot out of, out of sports. And, and for me, I think um, one of the kind of great things about moving around was um, you did lots of different sports. So Victoria, you know, Aussie rules dominated, but in other parts of the country, it was different sports. And, and I think that's why I've sort of loved adventure racing later in life is because uh, it is such a mix of different things. So 
um, you know, probably means that you're, ne you're never going to be the, you know, the pinnacle athlete in one area because um, that takes a sort of real dedication from a, from a young age and focused on a particular sport. That hasn't been my background. It's been trying lots of different things and um, you know, being, being reasonable at a broad range of things rather than being sort of great at any one sport. So you chose to move to Canberra to study computer engineering and law. You know, what attracted you to law? Was that something you grew up aspiring to? No, it's not actually. It's a funny, funny story. But um, engineering was um, something I'd been interested in. Um, my father was an engineer, and and so I'd seen that, and 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 I had a, a real interest in that, and I liked the kind of combination of the maths and the physics uh, with something producing something tangible at the end. So completely different to law. Um, but through a through a sort of series of events, the the university was starting up a course that was combined with law and. And it seemed like a good way to go from engineering into technical engineering into management sort of later in my career, which I always had a, a real interest in. Um, and so I did sort of law as a just an add-on adjunct thing, uh, really. And um, and then once I once I once I was going through my studies, I got a, an opportunity to work with a, a law firm, and it was you know, just a, a sort of basic income job while I was at university. And and when I uh, graduated, went on a, uh, a sort of trip around the world, like a lot of people do, to have their sort of post-university break. And I was over at the sort of tail end of that um, big skiing family. So I was skiing uh, in Canada, and I got this call to say, "Why don't you just do one year in in law? Um, yeah, you won't. Um, you, you you'll regret it if you don't sort of use that legal degree, get admitted, uh, and 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 sort of do that for a year, then go off and do your engineering thing." And I had a uh, job opportunity with an engineering firm. I thought, oh, "Well, that's a." Probably a good idea. I'll defer that for a year. Do the do the do the law for a year, um, and got into it and just really enjoyed it. And and so never never sort of left the course. So, I was say, what did what did the engineer firm say? Yeah, I mean they were um, they they were fine with it. I think at some point during that year they you know I, I called them and said that you know I've got you know, I've got further opportunities here and I'm going to stick with this for a while longer and. Um, and I think that was, you know, it was a good way to start your career in some ways because you didn't have any sort of expectations. There wasn't like, oh, I've always invested, you know, in, in trying to get to this sort of place. You know, I didn't have a sort of view around what firms I'd be working at or what type of work I'd be doing. It just um, because it came from left field and, it, and therefore there was no sort of real pressure. It was just, oh, let's see where this goes for a period. And, uh, and it's nice to have that sort of release that if, if something's not working out, well, I can go back to what I'd originally planned to do. And, and I think that's, um, you know, try and talk to our graduates about sort of being open-minded about where your career takes, takes you as well. It's good to have some sort of broad plan, um, but then to be open to sort of go with the flow. And if something steers you in a direction, different direction, then uh, be open-minded about it. So obviously, you know, that first year you're very open-minded. So what was that, what was it like starting out in law and were there some big lessons you learned in that first year? Yeah, I learned a, a huge amount. I mean, it's a big transition from the sort of academic uh, practices of, of uh, you know, any, do, any sort of uh, profession at university to, to doing it in, um, you know, in a professional sense. And, and a lot of it um, isn't the technical piece, but how you relate to, how you relate to people both within your organisation, but also um, you know dealing with with clients um, and how you turn something that's going to be um, not just a legal piece of advice, but something that's meaningful and useful and and helps um, helps people with trying to solve their problems or whatever their, their issue is that they're coming to you with. So that was the first couple of years was really about that learning a whole bunch of 
not the technical side, um, which have a decent grounding in, but all the rest that goes into you know being successful in business. So on TV, we you know see the dramatized version of law, you know, and shows such as Law and Order and The Good Wife. Is it really like that, or is it quite different in the real world? Certainly, the the law I do and that um, most of the work that Proximity does is very different to that. Um, you know, we're we're dealing with um, government and large corporations, and so it's you know most of those dramas tend to be sort of centered around family law and um, you know uh, criminal law. That's a different practice to us, and I think. Um, you know, sometimes it's funny, you go to family Christmases and the like and people expect that that's, that's what you're doing each day uh, and it's very different for us. It's much more a sort of business transactional firm um, that we have. Yeah, so maybe could you expand on the proximity story and, and how it started with yourself and business partner James Dunn, correct? And yeah, that's how, right. How it sort of panned out? Yeah, so um, having worked at the, the kind of couple of big international firms was a, was a great experience but something that Fairly early on, I decided I didn't want to do for the rest of my life, um, and 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 the, there was a couple of drivers for that. The first was um, as much as I found the law interesting. Um, there was you realised that that the legal piece in these transactions was just a, a slice of of, of what um, made the whole uh, project kind of successful, and so had a real interest in sort of broadening into other commercial uh, advisory aspects and. Um, and at the time, that wasn't really a done thing. You know, a lot of um, the sort of legal firms were very focused on their legal work, and they'd you know, been successful doing that for 150 years, so why not? Um, but we had the idea of, of having a sort of broader service offering that was a combination of um, the legal advice, but also commercial, you know, financial, um, you know, the financial aspects, um, the governance work. And so um, because what, that didn't exist, we had to, we had to create it. Um, and there was also been some sort of well-documented challenges in the legal industries around the expectations that um, some of those uh, those firms have on their staff, and um, you know, some pretty significant mental health uh, challenges that result from you know the work pressure and the long hours. Um, and I was never the sort of person who defined myself completely by my career. I had other interests, um, you know, sport and family and travel interests, and so. I didn't want to find myself in 20 years looking back saying I've carved out this great uh, legal career, but it's at the expense for, of, of everything else that interests me. So, um, so the, the the sort of logical conclusion to all of that was a decision to start um, to start proximity, uh, and so that was back in sort of end of 2011, and um, I, I was planning uh, or initial thought was I'd be happy to sort of go it alone, but I knew it would be easier having someone else to sort of share that journey with. And um, so I spoke to James Dunn, who I'd worked with uh, a lot. Uh, we worked at a couple of those firms together and we just had a very um, similar sort of worldview, I guess. Uh, and we aligned in a lot of the ways that we wanted to do things in business and, um, and he was keen. So we've been sort of going since then um, as sort of co-CEOs, which is a, um, something that I've really enjoyed having that support so and so, tell us about this co-CEO role. How do you how do you guys make that work? Because we've heard a few times on our yeah, active Michael CEO podcast, and yeah. Skybus. Yep, some of those guys have co, but there's some firms that are very traditional. Yeah, um, so it works for us uh, in, in the sense that, um, well, a couple, couple of ways. The the main one is that um, we when we started, we didn't define roles, so we didn't say okay. 
my, my ride is this side of the business and I'm gonna do operations and you're gonna be largely responsible for people and clients. Um, in those first few years, we were both just essentially doing everything. And so it was, um, and, and what you kind of, over the, over the evolution of that period of time, you start to work out where your strengths are. Someone might be stronger in a certain area and so you, your role naturally builds around that. So now we have a, a degree of separation uh, in terms of things that we manage in the business, um, but it's very, um, very sort of open, I, I guess. And so fair to say, organic type growth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, both in terms of the way those roles have grown for us, but also in terms of the business itself. I mean, we didn't go in with a, a sort of fully fledged plan to get go from where we were then to where we are now. Um, and a lot of that is a, a, going back to that sort of being open to opportunities um, and sort of exploring things when they come up. Yeah, you've got to have a, a rigor in the way you do that because as a, a, a fast growing business, it's easy to um, be a sh attracted to the every shiny new thing, but you've got to be strategic about what you're going to pursue. But I think being that general open mindedness and always looking for other opportunities has probably been one of the sort of keys to our success. So what's behind the name Proximity? Uh, so when we started, um, so we were doing legal work in, in the federal government sector, which is a, a highly competitive market. It's a, it's a big market dominated by a handful of um, sort of national and global firms. And so we knew that if we said we do exactly the same as those firms, but we've got a different uh, logo, that that was not going to be successful. So we had to have a, a different story to tell, some sort of innovation to, to kick things off. And, uh, and for us, that was based around having a, an on-site or an outposted model. So instead of our staff um, spending the majority of time in our office, you know, cooped up in a uh, in an in office, um, producing things and then sort of sending it across to the clients and hoping that hit the mark, we were working out there every day with the with the clients, and we were part of their team. And so we'd be sitting with um, the other in-house lawyers that they have, but also with their um, finance team, the HR team, so we knew what was going on in those organisations. Um, and so proximity was the representation of the fact that we're close to you and, and we're not just trying to do this from splendid isolation from our office. What a great um, competitive advantage that you established yourself there, you know, being right in it, right in the thick of things, understanding what's going on it must give you a, a massive advantage in the way that you're able to do your work and obviously build those relationships long term. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. The relationship part, um, obviously being there day in, day out, you really get to understand people in a different way and build those relationships, which is huge in business. Um, and the other, um, I think the other real advantage of being a, you know, you're kind of forced to innovate in a sense as a, as a new entrant. Um, so you have, uh, you have advantages and disadvantages, I guess, as a new entrant to, to a market, uh, particularly an established market. And, and the disadvantage is, you know, when Proximity started, we didn't have the brand of some of these firms that, you know, literally been around hundreds of years with, you know, um, across the world, maybe tens of thousands of staff. Um, but that forces you to be nimble, to do things a bit differently. And, and, so, and as long as you play to that strength, then I think that's where um, a lot of the growth has come from. But yeah, the, it has been great to have. And it's still, we've evolved since then. You know, we now do uh, a lot more work from our office, but we still have that as a kind of core part of our business. And, and even when people aren't um, in that sort of on-site or outposted model, they're still used to being connected with, with the client and, and really thinking about what is the client's needs and drivers in this and, and not doing what's the sort of ideal world sort of view or what, what, what advice would I give in a vacuum? They're really thinking about 
what is it what is this going to do for the client so you've you know talking about growth there you, it's been exponential in the last 18 months you've grown from around 20 staff to 55 plus now what has been your secret to success i suppose enabling that rapid growth and being able to scale so quickly yeah I mean, there's a few parts to that i think the one of the biggest ones is in a lot of professional services businesses the mantra is always client first um, and it's absolutely important to, to get the client piece right. But we've, we've taken more of you, I guess, aligned to what would in, uh, you know, in sort of a global business be called the triple bottom line, which is you don't want to think just about clients. You've got to get the combination of um, clients, staff and community right. And I think that's been a huge part for us because um, you know, really focusing on what's the environment for staff like. And because um, if you're thinking, all your energy is going into the client piece and you've got a bad staff experience, then people won't stay and, and the most talented people um, will either not join you or they'll walk out the door. And, and so we've had a real focus on getting the environment right for staff and being very flexible in terms of how and when people work um, and making it a, a, a place where people were genuinely sort of passionate to come and work with proximity. And I think that's been a, a huge part of it, particularly in a uh, predominantly services-based business. You know, you, the, the business is only as good as the people and you know, I'm really proud about the team we've assembled. Well, so can you explain that or, or sell that to me? If I was a new staff member coming through the door, this sort of is turning the model around a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. You're, you're really telling people how good it is to work here for these reasons. Yeah, so there's a whole, a whole bunch of them, but the, the, the first one is just flexibility, which is very simple to say. It's actually very simple to offer, but um, it hasn't been the sort of traditional, traditionally available to a lot of people in, in the legal industry. So, you know, in, in our, uh, at our workforce, if people want to work uh, full-time, standard role, then that's available to them at proximity. But we've got huge numbers of people that might work, uh, you know, part-time in, in terms of regular part-time, three days a week, or they might work five days a week school hours, or lots of people who will work um, three months and then they might not work the six months and then they'll come back and work part-time for a period and then they'll say, I'm gonna take another month off. And, and it's just about being completely accommodating for that. And so a lot of people um, who have joined us actually may well not be practicing law at all at the moment. Now they might be focusing on families or their sport if it wasn't for the fact that we can they can accommodate both at proximity. So that's a, that's a huge part. And then the other is recruiting people um, that are, that are that are people, people, people who are going to um, you know invest in their colleagues and um, have you know great relationships with clients and colleagues, and um, that means actually having some people who would be great technical practitioners who haven't joined our business because we're a much more sort of relationship-driven business. That um, yeah, so we've got to focus on a particular type of person, I guess. So you don't require them to come out and adventure race with you before they start <laughs> anything? No. Like, oh, I can see the look in your eye, you're thinking about that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do actually have quite a, a bit of active participation in, um, in sport, but it's not something that we, it's not certainly not a criteria, but we do like to have, I mean, Craig mentioned that we sponsor the, the triathlon in Canberra, and yeah. that's, um, yeah, that's great to have our staff participate in, and, and it's a really achievable triathlon. It's not a, it's not an Ironman or, or yeah. anything. Uh, and um, the the participation rate amongst staff is huge. We we have uh, essentially nearly every staff member will get involved in that, and that might be, um, you know, essentially doing the the two kilometre run as a walk. But if they're out there and part of it, um, 
Well, it's about engagement, about, isn't it? It it's is. It's really one of the terms that you want you want people to be engaged with what you're doing, and and then it probably leads us to the next question about getting involved with the sponsorship and the support, not only community but triathlon. I know you're involved with Men's Link, a number of other organisations. Um, so obviously you feel very proud about putting back into the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah and on a couple of fronts. I, mean, I think you know we're incredibly fortunate. I've just got um, just got back as I mentioned from a trip to Madagascar and. And you realise there how how much of what we have, you know, some of it is smart business and the like, um, you know, investing in your career, but a lot of it is just pure luck, you know, born in the right country at the right time. Um, and so I think with that mindset, um, you realise that you've got an obligation uh, in many ways to give back to the community. And, and, and in law, that's probably particularly strong. Um, you know, there's a monopoly on providing legal services. Um, only lawyers are entitled to do it. Um, but what comes with that is a responsibility to also ensure that services are available to people who might not be able to afford it. So we, we've had a really active pro bono program uh, and we have a huge number of our staff involved in that. And that's how we first started the relationship with Men's Link was doing their um, legal work on a pro bono basis or a free non-fee basis. Yeah. Um, but through that, we got to see just how much great stuff they were doing, supporting young say, men who needed maybe, that support. Maybe we should talk up Men's Link here a little bit with Martin Fisk. You know, some of the work they do is just groundbreaking really um, and I, I would love to see those programs rolled out nationally yeah as, as yeah so for people who don't know about men's link um, yeah they do they do amazing work they've got a couple of programs they run a, a program in schools which is training um, both men and women around things like kind of expectations and, and how to manage um, tricky situations. Um, it, they cover off on everything from mental health to you know ensuring that um, you know, men are respectful of women, all sorts of things. Um, and then the other part, which is uh, sort of, I guess their core, is, is buddying up young men who don't have a male role model in their life with someone who's willing to be that. Um, and the, you, know, you hear from the boys who have often been in a really tough situation and turned their lives around or um, from the mums who felt like they had a sort of teenage son who was a bit directionless and then had this mentor that really helped them you know, set a different path in life is amazing work. Mm. And um, you, know, you mentioned the CEO, Martin Fisk, you know, he's a really sort of passionate uh, and energetic guy and he's done great things for that organisation. Yeah. Unbelievable, isn't it, really? Yeah. So, so proud that you're involved with those and, and you know, those guys can get out in the community too. Yeah, yeah, and it does, I mean, it also gives a sense of purpose for our stuff. It, Aside from the, you know, you do it for the community benefit reasons, but it, it actually makes smart business as well because, you know, it gives people something to really believe in. And, you know, that's true of the work people are doing day to day as well, but um, it doesn't touch individual lives in quite the same way as something like supporting the men's link. Um, we're now supporters of Pharma Galong, which is, um, is also helping um, young women um, and a number of other charities around um, around the place, and, and and that does give people something to really bond on and helps um, you know helps the team to be sort of passionate, um, which is great. So talking about that, that mental wellness, and then also the the active wellness of the proximity um, Canberra Triathlon Festival, which is obviously supporting the community and and government and corporates getting involved. Um, it's a pretty amazing event. We, you know, we see a lot of people complete it for the first time, whether it be as an individual or, more importantly, as a team. Um, there's even a combined Liberal, um, Labor, Greens, Party Triathlon team in the 2019 event. You know, it, is there quite a bit of banter that goes on between the corporate and government departments? Yeah, there is. I mean, that, that's a really fun thing about it. And, 
and that's the way the event should be. It's not in, there's a serious aspect of it for people who want to compete seriously. Um, but there's also a, a real sense of sort of fun and collegiality and, and, and I guess um, good natured competition between organisations in the same industry or... Um, yeah. Almost an icebreaker too, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And it really can be the sort of thing that um, kind of, it's, it's early in the year and, and it's an amazing the number of people, that, as you say, they come and do their first triathlon, but then you speak to them several months after and you find out, well, now they have taken up swimming or they're doing some running or they're just uh, you know, making sure they get out with their family to the park more. And, and that's the great thing about these kind of events is, is some, some, sometimes it's just that catalyst to sort of reignite maybe something you did in your youth or be trying something for the first time. And, um, and it's, you know, there's so much sort of scientific literature and uh, around the importance of kind of being physically active and, and how that leads to better performance at work that you know, it's great to sort of kick the year off that way. So that's obviously a catalyst for a lot of people. But for you, you know, you, you got a taste of multi-sport and adventure racing when you came to Canberra in 2000, um, including doing the, the epic Sri Chimnoi triple try, which I'm sure you've got a great story about. What lit the spark in you to become an adventure racer? Yeah, so I... Um yeah, when I came to Canberra, I'd really done traditional sports uh, as my background, and I was uh, probably the one exception to that was I'd um, taken up in the sort of late years of uh, high school snow skiing uh, and snowboarding, and I was doing a bit of that. And so I, I was out at the University of Canberra, and I um, they have a sort of an outdoors club there, which is and, and skiing was one of the aspects. And I was like, perfect, I you know, meet some like-minded people. I was new to the town. Uh, and it just opened my eyes to a whole different world and you know there was people who were into mountain biking and hiking and climbing and canyoning and all these sort of sports that I'd had no exposure to um, so I did ski with them during the winter but you know I was really excited in the summer to try all these new sports and so I, I did that for uh, for several years with them and and because it was um, you know the combined engineering uh, and law degree was six years and I was there for, <laughs> for quite a stint and um, so by the end of it, I, I was, um, I was I took on the role as president of that club and it just gave me exposure to all those sports and I just, I loved the trying new things and being in the outdoors and, um, and through that, it really led into ad adventure racing. There's, um, you know, there was a, a sort of local series and a few of us thought, oh, let's, let's take that on and, you know, quite sort of um, really sort of fun, frivolous type races and, and it just went from there. Canberra is almost like a, you know, a fringe festival for outside the normal sports. You know, there's all sorts of things that go on here. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, there's some, um, some pretty incredible athletes and people, but also just a really high participation rate of everyday folk. And, uh, and that's one of the, I don't think I had any kind of great intention to stay in Canberra probably when I first, uh, first arrived. It was, it was a new place. I've been so used to moving around. Um, but it really grew on me the access to the mountains, you know, literally sort of on the doorstep and, um, you know, everything that you could kind of imagine, you know, great mountain biking, great kayaking, you know, the snow was close, the beaches were close. And so, um, yeah, that really has been a large part of what's getting me here. Now, I've heard through those days that you're fantastic with the navigation. Has that uh, improved as you've gone along? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, so adventure racing, for people who don't know, is a, it's a combination of um, the, the kind of core sports, a trail running, mountain biking and kayaking, and then you might have a mix of other ones thrown in, roping and other things. Um, but the, sort of one of the fundamentals is that it, is you've got to navigate yourself around to these points. And uh, so 
I had a reasonable kind of fitness in those early days, but no navigation skills. And you can run as fast as you like, but if you're running in the wrong direction, it's, it's not particularly helpful. And, come back, come yeah. back. <laughs> and that was us for a bunch of time. And, and again, because I hadn't come up through that really uh, you know, ingrained outdoor kind yep. of environment, um, my navigation was, was pretty sort of scratchy in those early years. But that was the fun of it, um, <laughs> was yeah, just being out there and thinking, oh, you could be completely lost. Yeah, I, so we're actually lucky to have you here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. There were some times where it genuinely felt like that. Yeah. You've gone some pretty incredible places. You know, you've done God's Own, which is in the backcountry of New Zealand and the South Island. You've recently just raced at the Adventure Racing World Championships in Reunion Island in Madagascar, which is, I mean, I'm sure it's on a bucket list of many people just to go and visit the place. Is it just a great excuse for a holiday or is there something that, that really draws you to go to those amazing parts and, and put yourself through some torture and pain and, and uh, getting lost? Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's great to get to see the world, um, you know, going to these places that you wouldn't see, probably wouldn't find the excuse to go there otherwise. Um, or if you did, you certainly wouldn't have experienced it in the same way. And that's the thing about these, you know, these long adventure races run over several days and nights. And so you... You, know, you might, if you went to Reunion Island, climb the highest mountain there. But for us, we were there at two in the morning, like three <laughs> days into a race. And so you just see it in a completely different way. It, having said that, it does not feel like a holiday. <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's one of these, uh, it's kind of a bittersweet experience, I think, adventure racing. And the, um, the good feels, um, it feels so good when you, you know, navigate to a point that you want because it's often the hard part to get there. And I think that's true of life. You know, some, if everything came sort of, was perfect all the time and super easy, then you might not enjoy those highs as much. So, you know, adventure racing, the difficulties almost in getting to some of those spots is what sort of amplitudes, um, amplifies the, you know, the highs. So it's fair to say that um, you're comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, you have to, I think you have to be for adventure racing. You have to be happy that um, at times it's just gonna be, be tough and know that you, you kind of, we'll get past that but the other the other great thing is it's a team sport um so there's four of you in a team and i i don't think you would be able to kind of complete those same kind of adventures uh as a, as an individual partly be partly f the, the physical aspects of it but most significantly just when you feel you know mentally um cooked there's someone there and you can lean on in your team to say you know we've just got to get through this or and physically, I mean, I really experienced that this last race. Had one of my toughest sort of race moments when, you know, I felt completely nauseous, exhausted, you know, barely able to move. And, and you had teammates there who would say, let me carry that gear. Let's, and yeah, we'll, we'll kind of keep an eye on you for these next couple of hours where you kind of, uh, you know, hope that you Get sort of bounce yourself, back yeah. on the other side. So, and so. so let's give a plug to these three teammates here. Who, who do you race with this year? Yeah, so I raced with um, Rowan Killam, um, who I've raced with for, for many, many years in lots of races. Um, Daniel Holland and a long-term long sort of friend of mine from back at the Outdoors Club days at university. Uh, and Shelly Bambrook, um, who, that was an interesting experience because um, Shelly sort of only new to our team only raced with her for the first time within the last 12 months, so a, a new person. But yeah, they were, they were great teammates and uh, and a good adventure to sort of be able to share with people. I don't think it'd be quite the same if you were doing it by yourself. So with, you know, the other day we were talking with uh, Natalia Cohen, who's gonna be on a podcast in the future, and they rode from San Francisco to Cairns, right? So nine months on the ocean, four people rowing a boat. Yeah. And 
six hours into day one, they had one of their teammates seeing a pirate ship go past and having hallucinations, and, and they kind of had a motto that if two people don't see it, it didn't happen, right? So <laughs> were there stages where you've got to cope with you know, that hallucination going on, the paranoia? I mean, you're out in this really dense bush and places you'd never been, and you're trying to navigate in the middle of the dark, and you're sleep deprived and you're probably onto day three or four of these events, you know, how do you cope in those times? Yeah, um, yeah, the hallucinations can definitely be, be part of it and anyone who's done adventure racing for a while has seen some pretty strange stuff and um, it, it's, it's amazing though, the rhythms, different people are at different rhythms so the coping really is a, a lot against, again, about reliance on other, other team members. Um, and, and, and another part is, I guess, that just, um, sort of finding new limits for yourself. I think that pushes you on at you know, various times when you, you, know, you think about, um, you, know, you want to be done, but you think, oh, well, I'm just going to look at what's, um, how do I complete this leg? And when I finish this leg, then I'll think about the next stage. And so a, a lot of it is just breaking things down to what's immediately in front of you get through that and then on to the, onto the next section. I do that with work. How do I get to morning tea? Yeah. <laughs> How do I get to lunch? Yeah, yeah well, I mean, it's true. And I think it's, uh, you know, in business, maybe not so much getting through the day, but how are you going to sort of deliver on a sort of three-year business plan or something? Some of that is looking at the whole thing and then saying, okay, well, what have I got to do right in this moment um, and not being distracted by something that's years in front of you. And adventure racing is the same. You, you need to have a plan about how you're going to get through the entire course because if you treat it like it was only one leg and went too hard, then you're not going to survive the rest. So in pacing and things relies on that. But at certain points, you've just got to say, well, what have I got to do right now? Because if you think of the whole thing, it's just a bit overwhelming. So we're kind of getting a bit of an understanding of how you cope in these situations when you're in a team environment out of venture racing. Can you explain to us your leadership style and how, you know, what you're learning from the other activities you do, both in family life, your, your other business venture, and maybe from the adventure racing as well, how that kind of helps complement the way you lead your organisation? Yeah, um, I don't know if sort of an, have a name for the style. In some ways I focus a lot on um, le leadership that gets uh, a lot of people involved in the decision making. We're definitely not a sort of authoritarian type leadership. Um, certain businesses function well that way, but that's not us. I mean, we spend a lot of time um, you know, focusing on what is it and getting everyone involved and saying what is it that we want to do as a as a collective group as a business and, and i think that really works for us and, and that probably is got a lot of parallel or does have a lot of parallels to adventure racing because ultimately um you know this recent race i was the captain of our team but when you're out in the middle of the bush you can't tell people okay we're going to run 10 percent harder and they'll listen to you just because you've told them that you know it's really about having people want you know want to be part of that and the team all feeling like they're going towards some sort of collective goal or you know they're sharing a collective ambition and and that's largely the way um, we run proximity as well um so you know the going back to sort of the more traditional environment we essentially have uh you know usually a group of partners or um you know directors whatever it might be who they set the tone or they set the um you know the complete agenda and strategy for the organization for us instead of having a you know, partnership forum or something, our, we have a group, uh, an internal strategy group, which is comprised from people who have just joined us who might still be final year uh, students uh, through all the various levels from both people doing professional service delivery through to people working in the marketing teams and the like, all sort of throwing around ideas and having a, and a role in, in setting the strategy for the business. And I think you know, that's been hugely valuable for us and, and you think 
now that we do that, it seems obvious, but you still look at a lot of organisations, you know, it might largely be um, a, a small number of, you know, typically, you know, white older men making decisions for a business and you're clearly going to miss things there because you're not thinking about well, what is the experience like for young folk and what do they want, what's the experience like for people with different backgrounds and so we found that that real, uh, having a kind of collective decision making um, works for us and then there still is the need at times to make hard decisions as a leader and so you've got to know when at certain times you've got to say, you know, we've heard all of that, but this is the direction we're going to take. And then it becomes usually about communication. This is the reason why we're taking this path and, and, and others being able to really see that. And I think communication is massive. That's a big part of, uh, of leading is, is bring others on the, uh, on the understanding the, the goal and, and bring them towards it. And then I think you can't get away with, um, with, with just saying you've got, to, you've got to really lead by example and do. And I think most people, in leadership roles would say that you know really got to sort of set set the tone and 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 live what you expect others to do so do you have any rituals or habits that you do each day to ensure that you're the best version of yourself and bring your a game to your team at work i actually don't i'm not a ritual sort of driven person um and again i think that's probably shows why i like things like adventure racing you don't everything's coming from left field and a bit and being in a sort of a new emerging business uh, with you know trying to you know have um, you know bring innovations to the market is like that as well things just change every day and and so that really suits me um, and I know you know I've, I, at various times I've trained um, with triathlon squads rather than sort of with my adventure racing team and that's much more um, methodical I guess you know you have um, you know, you have a, a, a much more mapped out plan around what sessions you're going to do and periodization and the like. Um, whereas for me, the randomness almost generates that. So I have times when it just happens to be that I'm super busy at work, so I'm, that's a rest period for me. And then I have times when um, I'm leading into events, so I'll make sure that I'm training lots and that's my downtime from work. And so I, I kind of just embrace the, <laughs> the kind of chaos of that, that system. And, and it, I've got uh, a couple of young children at the moment as well. So that the fact of all those different things happening in life and, and on top of that, we manage a farm. So the, I just kind of embrace that, which means I have very few routines and I'm happy that way. And it wouldn't suit everyone, but for me, that's, uh, that's what I like. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I can think of uh, I can think of an answer which is probably slightly off <laughs> of what you said. Rather than being the last time I did something for the first time, I, this afternoon I'll be doing something for the first time. So it's it's a future one, but in a, sort of only a handful of hours from now, um, I've got a, a horse riding uh, lesson where I'm going to go uh, jumping for the first time, and my wife has got quite into horse riding over the last couple of years, and. Um, she said, oh, yeah, I've supported you through so many sports. We, we, we adventure raced a lot together and, um, you know, done a lot of white water kayaking that she always said, oh, I've, you know, I'm terrified of kayaking and I got dragged on all these, uh, all, all these epic adventures. And, um, and so, so we, you know, now you've got, you've got to have a crack at my sport. So, uh, yeah, I'm hooked up to do a, a, a horse jumping lesson this afternoon, which will be, <laughs> be we, for the first time. For we me. might call you tomorrow morning and see how, see it, how it went with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, what, was, um, what is one question that you would love to solve? Question I'd love to solve. Um, look, I think a, a huge uh, 
a huge challenge in Australia is how we do um, better by our Indigenous population. And I've had the opportunity through a few volunteering experiences to go out to, uh, to Central Australia and, and see how um, you know, a lot of the Indigenous communities live out there. And um, you know, we've still got so much, uh, so much more we could and should be doing. But having spent a bit of time thinking about this, and, and a, lot of people, a lot of people much more involved it than I am, with lots of goodwill um, you know, and, and in, you know, investments of money and the like, we still haven't been able to kind of turn that uh, around as well as we should. Um, you know, there's still huge gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous health and um, literacy and all sorts of measures. And, and I think, uh, if, you know, if I could have the answers to some of those questions about how we improve uh, the situation for Indigenous Australians, I'd love to know that. I mean, it's fair to say that we all feel the same, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's a, to it's solve a that huge one, issue. It? And, and, but, but really, really complex, you know, the, the overlay of um, you know, geography and different cultural um, aspects and history. History, yeah, it's, it's a really tough one. But if we could get some of the answers, we'd all be better for it. Yeah. And who has made the greatest impact on your career, and why? Uh, well, probably as a single individual, had the greatest impact is, is my wife Kim, um, and that's because I, I probably never imagined myself starting a business. Um, and when we were a few years out of um, university, um, she would, she'd worked for a global ho hotel chain in marketing and then she was doing work for Care International uh, in their marketing team, one of the, the NGOs, and decided she wanted to start her own business. And seeing someone do it made it seem like a realistic thing to do. But I think without, without having that, I don't know if I would have been the person to say, oh, that's, a, that's an, a viable alternative. Uh, and then it also made starting a business much easier. You know, we, rather than having to go out day one and lease office premises, you know, we could um, piggyback on Le a lot of the work they done. Yeah, leech off, <laughs> leech off Kim. And, um, and so I feel really, you know, that that's a, that, that was a huge turning point when she decided to start a business and I could see oh, that's, that's an option. Because I think for a lot of people, you know, they can have the ideas and, um, but you don't, necessarily, you don't necessarily sort of see that as a, as a possibility. And, uh, or if you do, it sort of seems too hard to achieve. So seeing someone else start a business was, was massive for me. And um, so yeah, I'd name Kim as the, the kind of the biggest sort of influence in the, my career to where it is, and even though a completely different industry. And what, what is Kim's business? So, so Kim um, started early bird marketing events and Craig in the intro gave me far too much credit of my role in that. <laughs> so um, I am a director of the business, but, but very hands off because Kim really runs that. And um, yeah, they do, uh, they do events management in Canberra for a lot of uh, mix of sporting events, but also um, government conferences and, and the like. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a great little, little business that um, suits, suits our family situation really well, it gives Kim a lot of flexibility around um, looking after our two boys. And um, yeah, and, and it's, a, it's quite a different uh, business than proximity. And Kim's not sort of looking to grow up quickly, but it's still great to have someone else that you can bounce ideas off and say, well, yeah, how are you treating this at the moment or how are you tackling that? Uh, and, then, and then pick up the good bits and roll it into our business. So Sean, it's, um, it's been fantastic and a pleasure speaking with you today really enjoyable listening to the way you approach your leadership you know like I felt like today that I was 
on an adventure with you, but I felt very calm at the same time that you had everything under control, apart from when you're navigating sometimes, <laughs> but felt pretty, pretty under control. And, you know, really enjoyed the fact of you took that step to start your own business and do something really different and think about the story. I mean, a lot of people go into business and they don't think about how they can be uh, have an advantage over someone else or what can there be the unique selling point. So, you know, full credit for the way that you've done that. I also like the way that you have gained a lot out of what your wife did in taking that first step with the entrepreneurship. Um, the co-CEO thing is quite fascinating. It's the second uh, co-CEO we've spoken to and we're actually going to go back and probably interview that, those two co-CEOs together next time because uh, there's some really big insights, I think, into the way that you can co-lead and the diversity that provides. And it's not just one person's opinion. It's it's a bit more of a collective at that you know, major decision-making process. And we can really feel a sense of your community, you know, being involved with the likes of Men's League, um, setting up the triathlon event where, you, where you're bringing corporate community and government all together, which is a fantastic idea, and how that helps support the growth and development of your team members as well. And, and as a team, building and, and feeling better about themselves and being able to feel like they're achieving something not only in work, but in the community and for themselves as well. So thank you very much for your time. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to speak with you and we look forward to seeing how proximity progresses in the future. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Ben, it's been, uh, it's been great. Yeah, and it's nice to actually get these questions and have a chance to reflect on them yourself and, and think about um, you know, the answers to these. So yeah, appreciate it. It's been a great experience and uh, yeah, great podcast. And so by the time we go out, uh, you would have had Christmas. So we wish you a very Merry Christmas and it will be just launching in the new year. So we wish you, as you said, a great 2019. Perfect. And to you. Today's Active CEO Wellness Tip is talking about being the one, developing a positive frame of mind about your exercise, your day ahead and what's important to you. Yeah, you know, being able to align your exercise efforts with things that are both positive and reassuring is so powerful. You know, if you try and align it with negativity, like, oh, I have to go for a run today, or I have to go to the gym, you're not going to, one, enjoy it, two, you're going to struggle through that, and you're not going to feel so great afterwards. So, you know, being, being one with yourself and drawing that energy and going in there with a positive frame of mind. And, and we've all been uh, subject to that before where you, you do wake up and say, oh my God, how can I face this? Why do I need to go to, for a run? Or you, you just add the stress by being negative. So to make the choice of how you view it is a really important skill to have. And being able to surround yourself with people that enjoy exercising as a group and you enjoy being around and that you know everyone bounces off each other and it provides a really positive mood. And it's something that you can really objectively measure the results from too. You know, if you, you feel great being around and you're having a good laugh, then you're going to see the energy come out. You're going to push each other a little bit more. And at the end of the day, you feel so much more accomplishment. Absolutely. And, and also think about it this way. You might lift the other people in your group or in your sphere or in your household. And that's a really important thing to do also. been a great interview today with Sean King at the proximity offices what a what a quiet office yeah it was amazing but I can certainly tell you that everyone's uh, happy and and works away busy beavers there and um, it's really enjoyable to be part of their environment so co-CEOs with his uh, good friend James Dunn and you know we spoke about that a little bit it's a unique experience it's what we saw with Michael Seawards and Adam at, at Skybus yeah 
obviously works very well for them. And as you said during the interview, it'd be really great sometime to actually interview the, the both the boys together and, and sort of find out the dynamics and how, how it works. That'd be really cool to do too. Yeah, it is very unique because, you know, he started off, they didn't actually put a lot of time into mm. figuring out what the roles were. It became organic. And I suppose it's part of his life, you know, like he started off as a engineer and and had the opportunity to be an engineer and decided to defer that um, for a very long time now and become a lawyer. I think what I saw, Craig, on, certainly on that co-CEO was just the open mindset. So uh, really willing just to be part of the journey together. Um, and I think that probably pays dividends for him. And that's probably why they didn't need the really clearly defined roles. They're quite happy to figure it out as they go along. And I think it's important, right? You gotta like the people you're around and they established a really good environment there where they get people involved in an active, healthy lifestyle. And it's just an enjoyable one where people get to make some of those decisions together. And they talks about even those that are still in university, mm. you know, they, they come on as paralegals or there might be interns in the organization, but that should become part of the strategic decision-making teams. Yeah, absolutely. And he talked about learning that in his early careers when he worked at other legal firms. Um, not being part of that decision-making process and you can now see that that's really paid dividends for him by bringing those people in and making them part it's it's a collective so to speak so he's navigating a really good path for himself mm. and it's quite funny because we talked about navigating as part of yeah. adventure racing and he struggled with that at the beginning yep. some great experiences there when you're under pressure you are in the moment where you're sleep deprived you've got that paranoia sitting in hallucinations come in sometimes and you know, we, we spoke about going to these amazing places. Mm. But as he said, you might be at the top of a mountain, but it might be 2 a.m. and you can't see anything. Yeah, exactly. It's a real good lesson in the whole concept of making critical decisions under massive amount of stress or tiredness. Everybody knows that happens in business. Are you making the right decisions? And that's the, I guess the adventure racing is sort of magnifying it, so to speak. It happens in three, three or four days. Got to be comfortable in that uncomfortable yep. environment, which is all about business, especially if you're wanting to constantly evolve and change and innovate mm. in what you're doing. And they've done a fantastic job in changing the, the legal model here, especially in Australia, where rather than sitting in their own office and writing reports and sending them off, they're actually getting in, People. down and dirty, inside the organization and learning with everyone, not just about the legal aspects, but talked about the communication, the HR, and more of the strategy aspects as well. Yeah, obviously a very successful model, and uh, they're, they're, I guess, you know, showing that that can be done differently. And different they were. So this is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's N-R-G number two perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.